Good evening. Myanmar killings grow as protesters remain defiant. The White House goes on the road to plug the American Rescue Plan, and a house that may have been part of the Underground Railroad is saved from wreckers in Brooklyn. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Monday, March 15th. 2021. Myanmar security forces shot dead at least 20 pro-democracy protesters on Monday, and the military junta imposed martial law in parts of the main city of Yangon. Supporters of detained elected leader Aung San Suu Kyi took to the streets again despite the killing of dozens of protesters on Sunday in the bloodiest day since a military coup on February 1st ignited mass demonstrations nationwide. In total, 183 people have been killed by security forces in the weeks of protests against the coup, and the casualties are rapidly increasing. Suu Kyi, 75, has been detained since the coup and faces various charges. The Nobel Peace Laureate was due to face another virtual court hearing on Monday, but the session couldn't proceed because the internet was down. Arson attacks on Sunday against 32 Chinese-invested factories prompted a demand the Myanmar generals stop the violence. The demand came from Beijing. In a particularly grim development, the army over the weekend dug up the grave of 19-year-old protesters, a 19-year-old protester, a woman who was shot in the head and became a martyr and lightning rod for the movement. Michael Beer is executive director of Nonviolence International. Beer has been to Myanmar many times and has worked for 30 years supporting the nonviolent campaigns for peace, justice, and democracy in the country. He says the resistance has been remarkable. The military just dug up this woman's body uh, to try to falsify the autopsy and say that she was not shot by them and that they have burned more corpses today on the streets of Rangoon or Yangon, again, as a way to cover up evidence of their crimes. They killed at least 60 more people over the weekend, the total five more today. It looks like they're up around 145, 150 people confirmed killed, including a number of political party leaders from the National League for Democracy who were beaten to death in prisons. And there they're saying, oh, they jumped out of the building. They didn't uh, get beaten to death. The brutality is quite extreme. They've shut down the internet for mobile phones beginning yesterday and that has prevented a lot of street protests or harmed them but it's also prevented Aung San Suu Kyi from having a court date today because their internet was substantially down and they couldn't actually have the remote court case that they had last time it's a fraudulent kind of court case of course the military is willing to cut off its nose to spite its face. It's willing to damage the economy and destroy the economy. It's willing to have all kinds of things not work and function by closing down the mobile internet. The situation for the people is quite extreme because the economy under COVID had already been badly damaged and it's a fairly poor country. And now with this resistance of the people in terms of a massive stay-at-home and civil resistance, the economy has really crashed, and so people are really suffering economically, and it's likely to get worse. People were out on the streets again today, despite 60 people being shot dead and many others wounded. It's absolutely remarkable. The people are just so courageous, it's almost beyond belief. There was some interesting 
earnings of Chinese factories, Chinese invested factories yesterday with tens of millions of dollars in damage. It's not sure who did this, whether it was opposition forces or the military themselves trying to justify their stepping in in this coup. China made a very strong statement, their strongest to date, which shows you they're more concerned about money than they are about people. There is an anti-Chinese element, but some of the protesters who've been killed have been ethnic Chinese. And there are many people in Burma who are trying to make this distinction, saying, look, we're not against the Chinese people. We're just unhappy that the Chinese government supports the regime. Could China intervene? It's unlikely that that would happen. China and other major powers have lots of ways to intervene without sending in troops, particularly economically, politically. China also has a long border with Myanmar, and it can supply weapons to the people it wants to supply weapons to and do those kinds of things without sending in its actual troops. People shouldn't doubt that it sees its next-door neighbor as is very important to its national security and it will intervene if it feels threatened. So that's one of the challenges here. We don't want Myanmar to turn into a kind of a geostrategic battlefield between India and the United States and China. What we really need, of course, is we need the world to unite around the Burmese people to try to get this military to step back and to reverse this coup. But they're digging themselves a big hole. The whole country is getting into deeper and deeper tragedy, economic crisis, and suffering. Has the human rights side of the United States government gotten involved in this? The Biden administration, as well as Congress, have been stepping up, implementing sanctions on the military and the military holding companies. There are bills in Congress that have bipartisan support. We do ask people to continue to pressure the United States government to pass new sanctions legislation and to go and join in on consumer boycotts that you can find on various websites against companies that are doing business with the Burmese military. And that is Michael Beer, and he was discussing the uh, recent developments in Burma. He is the executive director of Nonviolence International. Although anti-China sentiment has risen since the coup, protest leaders say Myanmar people did not hate their Chinese neighbors, but advised their rulers, the rulers of China, that they had to understand the outrage as long as China supports the generals. And President Joe Biden kicked off the White House's effort to highlight the benefits of his huge COVID relief plan Monday, declaring that hope is here in a real and tangible way as his administration began fanning out across the country to promote the new spending. The roadshow dubbed the Help is Here tour by the White House began Monday today with Vice President Kamala Harris heading to a COVID-19 vaccination site and a culinary academy in Las Vegas and First Lady Jill Biden touring a New Jersey elementary school. The tour is an attempt by Biden to uh, not repeat what he feels was former President Obama's failure to sell his bailout package in 2008. Meanwhile, Biden chose Gene Sperling, a longtime Democratic economic policy expert, to oversee the massive stimulus package, the role he himself had in 2009's economic rescue package to lead efforts to stay on top of every dollar spent. And with vaccine hesitancy discouraging many supporters of former President Trump from taking their shots, according to polls, Biden was asked if he'll ask Trump to support the vaccination program. I discussed it with my team and they say the thing that has more impact than anything Trump would say to the MAGA folks is what the local doctor, what the local preachers, what the local people in the community say. So I urge 
I urge all local docs and ministers and priests to talk about why, why it's important to get it to get that vaccine. And even after that, until everyone is, in fact, vaccinated to wear this mask. And the effects of the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan are apparently already being felt. The IRS says the $1,400 payments to each taxpayer have begun appearing in bank accounts. And senior White House COVID advisor Andy Slavitt announced today an increase in government reimbursements for each shot of the vaccine administered. We'll nearly double Medicare's reimbursement rates for administering COVID vaccines from about $23 per shot to $40 per shot. That's $80 total for a two-dose vaccine. Now, this will make it easier for more healthcare providers to get out into communities and give more COVID shots to people in need. We need this heroic team in particular to make sure that our highest risk and underserved populations are cared for. Second, thanks to the American Rescue Plan, the administration will now be covering 100% of the cost for Medicaid and children's health insurance beneficiaries to get vaccinated. This protects states from bearing any costs associated with the increased Medicare reimbursement rates. Senior White House COVID advisor Andy Slavitt. But even as the vaccination program goes into gear, the spread of variants has some worried that the vaccine won't be as useful as advertised. The head of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is Dr. Rochelle Wolanski. She says soon the variant first seen in the UK will be dominant in the U.S. It's not evenly distributed across the United States. We do have um, B117 reported in 50 jurisdictions, over um, 4,700 cases reported so far, and that's just based on what we're, we're um, evaluating and sequencing. In some states, Florida and California, it's up to 25%. In other states, it's lower. Our current models still project by the end of March, early April, B117 will be the dominant variant. Dr. Rochelle Wolanski is head of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Meanwhile, in domestic terrorism news, the FBI said Monday it's closing out the investigation into the Christmas Day blast that occurred in Nashville, Tennessee. They say the man who blew himself up inside his recreational vehicle was grappling with paranoia and eccentric conspiracy theories. But there are no indications he was motivated by social or political ideology. The FBI concluded that the bomber, Anthony Quinn Warner, chose the location and timing so that it would be impactful while still minimizing the likelihood of undue injury. Authorities were able to identify Warner through DNA recovered from the blast site. Nearly three months after the explosion, the blast site is still closed to traffic with months of repairs expected. And in Washington, United States officials have arrested and charged two men with assaulting U.S. Capitol Police Officer Brian Sicknick with bear spray during the January 6th riot. But they do not know yet whether it caused the officer's death. George Tanyos, 39, of Morgantown, West Virginia, and Julian Cotter, 32, of Pennsylvania, were arrested Sunday on an array of charges, including assaulting a federal officer with a dangerous weapon, conspiracy, and other offenses. Five people died in the Capitol assault, including a woman who was shot by a police officer inside the building. Investigators initially believe that Sicknick was hit in the head by a fire extinguisher, but as they've collected more evidence, they now believe Sicknick may have ingested a chemical substance, possibly bear spray, that may have contributed to his death.
On social media, Tanyos has referred to himself as the sandwich Nazi. He runs a greasy spoon in Morgantown, West Virginia, and is tangled with customers and former employees in online comments. The medical examiner's report on Sicknick's death is incomplete and no cause of death has been made public. Capitol Police say they are awaiting toxicology results. Meanwhile, security officials will soon scale back the perimeter fencing surrounding the Capitol in response to guidance from the Capitol Police that there does not exist a known credible threat that warrants keeping the temporary barrier in place. Thousands of National Guard troops also remain in place protecting the Capitol, and it's expected their numbers will be reduced in coming weeks. Last week, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin approved a Capitol Police request to extend the deployment of nearly 2,300 Guard members for about two more months because possible threats of violence remain. As lawmakers have described their unease at arriving for work each day in what they say feels like a war zone. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Governor Andrew Cuomo is fighting for his political life as he faces scrutiny amid mounting allegations of sexual harassment and inappropriate behavior and scrutiny over the state's handling of nursing homes during the pandemic. Today, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki weighed in. The president finds them troubling, hard to read, and every woman who steps forward needs to be treated with dignity uh, and respect. The New York Attorney General is pursuing, of course, an independent investigation against Governor Cuomo, and that is appropriate. And the president believes that's appropriate, as is the vice president. Uh, the investigation needs to be both quick and thorough, consistent with how serious these allegations are. And just Jen Psaki, today, Charlotte Bennett met with investigators in a video conference more than four hours on Monday as part of the probe of sexual harassment allegations leveled against Cuomo. Bennett, a former aide in the governor's administration, is one of more than half a dozen women who have accused Cuomo of harassment or inappropriate behavior. Cuomo has denied ever touching anyone inappropriately, though after Bennett's initial allegation, he apologized to anyone who he said may have felt uncomfortable in the workplace. On Sunday, Manhattan Borough President Gail Brewer and Queensboro President Donovan Richards became the latest local leaders calling for Governor Cuomo to step down. They said in a joint statement, we cannot condone this behavior and don't believe that government can work effectively amid nor should it try to work around such a serious situation. In New York City today, Mayor Bill de Blasio is asking for an investigation into whether vaccine czar and close Cuomo confidant Larry Schwartz is linking vaccine supply to support for the embattled governor. Schwartz has reportedly reached out to elected officials to gauge their support for Cuomo. What we've heard is about the governor and his team trying to link vaccine supply to political support. That is the definition of corruption. Uh, it is disgusting, it is dangerous. Uh, there are lives on the line and it cannot be tolerated. There needs to be now a full investigation of that on top of the investigation of the nursing home scandal, the investigation of the sexual harassment and molestation. Uh, there needs to be an investigation of what happened with the Tappan Zee Bridge, but now on top of it, there needs to be an investigation of why a senior official in the governor's office clearly tried to link vaccine supply to political support. And uh, I'll tell you something, he better not call me because I'll tell him what he can do with that. Meanwhile, a Siena College poll released Monday morning found half of voters in New York don't think Cuomo should resign 
while a plurality of voters believe he can continue to do an effective job as governor. A range of New York Democrats, from top leaders in the state legislature to nearly all of the state's congressional delegation, have called for Cuomo to step down. But the poll released on Monday found crucial elements of Cuomo's political base – Black voters, Democrats, union households, and New York City residents continue to stand by him despite the controversies and are not aligned with their elected officials yet. And even as political leaders battle it out, the pandemic continues its deadly course. However, at least for today, the numbers of sick and dying have declined. And today's indicators are number one, daily number of people admitted to New York City hospitals for suspected COVID-19. Now, today we have some interesting numbers. Again, every day... Uh, is subject to some variations uh, that may be indicative or may not, but it's notable. We have, for the first time in a long time, a number well below our threshold, 154 patients. Confirmed positivity level of 60.59%, hospitalization rate 3.68 per 100,000. Number two, new reported cases on a seven-day average. Today's report, 3,123 cases. And number three, Percentage of people testing citywide positive for COVID-19. Today's report on a seven-day rolling average, 6.16%. And in another plague, gun violence, Mayor de Blasio today announced a new pilot program aimed at deterring young adults from picking up the gun. The program will pair up youth who are at risk for gun violence with mentors and violence interrupters. Public advocate Jumani Williams says the city started a similar program about 10 years ago called the Crisis Management System, which began in Chicago, and gun violence declined. Most of crime uh, remains low. We can't ignore the fact that there are some crimes that are going up. Uh, Shootings is one of them, and we can't ignore that. Uh, We lost uh, some people just this weekend. Cordelia Valenas. 37, hit by a stray bullet in Queens. She's a mother of two. These stories are too common. I can't begin to imagine, and I don't really want to, the pain that that family is dealing with right now. And we've seen and felt that pain over and over and over again. We know in order to heal old wounds and build new partnerships, it's going to require bold action. And so we have to implement, implement strategies Uh, that support community safety, treat community trauma, and build community strength. It doesn't mean there's no accountability. These things, too, are very tough on crime. As you mentioned, everyone has a role to play in co-producing public safety. That means law enforcement. But too often left out are the other partners that get us to public safety, the people who help co-produce public safety, the community organizations, the credible messengers. We know it's not enough to just react to violence. We need to advance peace. Uh, This pilot program is an opportunity to demonstrate the power, not just the program, but of these principles of public safety. Public advocate Jumani Williams. The new pilot program will be implemented at the 46th precinct. It will be used at a precinct in every borough, such as the 73rd precinct in Brooklyn beginning this summer. And the recently landmarked abolitionist home at 227 Duffield Street in downtown Brooklyn has been sold to the city. The sale came after a lawyer for the developer who owned the property said the uh, property's historical designation caused the home's value to plummet. The city's Department of Citywide Administrative Services, which oversees acquisition of private property, closed the sale of the building for $3.2 million last week. First Lady Shirlane McRae made the announcement today. Which means it will be protected and celebrated for a very long time to come. 
It's a place where abolitionists risked their livelihoods and lives so that African people who were enslaved could travel to freedom. And we told the story of Mama Joy, the brave owner who not only protected this property, but spread the word about the importance that had taken place there. And we said it was time for all of us to learn about and understand the full history of the Underground Railroad and those who fought against the institution of slavery in New York. The purchase of 227 Duffield Street is a first step toward making that happen. First Lady Shirlane McRae. Simeon Bankoff is the executive director of the Historic Districts Council. He says it's impossible to tell the building's exact role, but he adds New York City was central to the slave trade. The building itself is a building from the mid-19th century, a row house, one of the last remaining row houses left on Duffield Street in downtown Brooklyn. It belonged to the Truesdales, who were very prominent abolitionists in the early and mid-19th century and were very involved with the abolition movement. William and Harriet Truesdale lived at 227 Duffield Street from 1850-1851 until after Mrs. Truesdale's death in the early 1860s, but it remained in the family until the 1920s. It was designated as an individual New York City landmark on February 2nd, 2021, just last month. We were very excited by this because this is one of the few properties in New York, one of the few designated landmarks in New York that are specifically linked to the abolitionism movement in America. And New York was very prominent in that. New York also has a very unfortunate history with regard to the enslavement of African people. The mayor actually mentioned that. He said exactly almost word for word what you just said about the unfortunate history. And uh, what is the negative side of it? What was New York's role in the slave trade? New York State, unfortunately, was a major slave-holding state, as well as being a place where a lot of enslaved African peoples and people of African descent were sold at auction. Even though manumission in New York State happened in the 1827, if I recall correctly, there were still enslaved peoples into the 19th century. And there is a long tradition, uh, hundreds of years of tradition, of there being enslaved peoples who were both traded, bought, and sold as property in New York State, and actually working in New York State when, in New York City specifically, especially when New York City was more of an agricultural basis. There's the Lot House in Brooklyn. There was definite traces of there being domestic slaves as well as plantation slaves. This is stuff that was not secret at the time, but has been forgotten by history. There were large plantation type farms in Brooklyn and in the Bronx that I know of. I assume probably in Queens as well, The Queens was settled a little later. There is the African burial grounds in Lower Manhattan. In Queens, in fact, we are working with a group in Elmhurst that has African burial ground. That was uh, the woman in the iron coffin. They discovered an African American woman who had died there, a freed woman, but who had died there in the early 19th century and was buried in a metal coffin and that was then dug up when the area was being redeveloped. This is all throughout New York City. This was a mm-hmm. stop on the Underground Railroad. That is not provable. The Underground Railroad is a metaphor. It was not an actual choo-choo train because it was actually profoundly illegal. It's hard to find documentation on whether or not the specific sites were actually used for fugitives 
to escape from enslavement down south on their way north. It is provable, however, that 227 Duffield Street was a hotbed of abolitionist activity, that the Truesdales were very fervent abolitionists, but whether or not any enslaved or formerly enslaved African and African Americans on their way to freedom passed through that house is unknown at this point and may never be knowable. However, the fact that the Landmarks Preservation Commission moved to designate and landmark the house and that the city has now moved to buy it means that that house will continue to exist as more research happens. Like a lot of things in history, sometimes we have artifacts that tell us what it might have been like. Anyway, that's a lot of all we have in history sometimes. And the best way to understand history is to physically encounter it. It's one thing to read a book that explains what happens. Books are wonderful, wonderful windows and doors. However, actual windows and doors also work really, really well when you're trying to imagine, especially for children. Take them to a site and say, this is a site where this and this happened. History museums are incredibly important to our civic fabric. They are also very difficult to put together and fund and maintain. We've seen that throughout COVID. All of our museums have taken a real beating. I know that there's a lot of interest in the community, in the local community, and also the activist community to make it into some kind of center for the African diaspora and to talk about abolitionism and talk about the black experience in New York. And I think that we could really use more of that. Simeon Bankoff is the executive director of the Historic Districts Council. And finally, the Senate on Monday, just moments ago, confirmed New Mexico Representative Deb Haaland as Interior Secretary, making her the first Native American to lead a cabinet department and the first to lead the federal agency that has wielded influence over the nation's tribes for more than nearly two centuries. Haaland was confirmed by a 51 to 40 vote. Democrats and tribal groups hailed Haaland's confirmation as historic, saying her selection means that indigenous people who lived in North America before the United States was created will, for the first time, see a Native American lead the powerful department where decisions on relations with the nearly 600 federally recognized tribes are made. Interior also oversees a host of other issues, including energy development on public lands and waters, national parks, and endangered species. And that's some of the news for Monday, March 15th, 2021. The news was produced with Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo for the WBAI News. Thanks for listening.